0: of the kitchen staff. Did you not tip them? Oh, the terrorist around that way. It was a run by fruiting. I'll get them. Sir. Don't worry. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, besides uh Dante's Peak and the other uh, Bond films that I'm about to be talking about today, I decided to include Mrs. Doubtfire movie quote. Oh, it's a run by fruiting. Oh man, Robin Williams and Pierce Brosnan. They did a good job on this film, and I decided to throw that in thought it was funny. All right, on to the show. <gasps> What's up, brody? Welcome back to Martial Media Montage, episode 86. We're going we'll to be talking Dante's Peak, GoldenEye, Tomorrow Never Dies, World Is Not Enough, Embrace, Galaxy 500, Love As Laughter Rights, The Spring, and Napster, as well as a little bit of Beyond Good and Evil on PS2. Yeah, kind of a little bit of a speed as well as a little bit of a tone down. I mean, just so I'm trying to be a little more clear to you guys. (laughs) Uh, Dante's Peak, uh, Piers Brosnan. Goldeneye, also Piers Brosnan. Tomorrow Never Dies, Piers Brosnan. And guess what? World is Not Enough, Piers Brosnan. For some reason, I was on a Bond slash Piers Brosnan kick. I have these on VHS, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to talk about them. And then in between – you know, watching these movies, I've been playing Beyond Good and Evil. It was a game that I started to play with my cousin when I was a kid on PS2. It came out in 2003 as an action adventure video game developed and published by Ubisoft, the guys behind, uh, you know, the Rabbids as well as uh, Rayman. But uh, I played this with my cousin Andy back in the day. I think I I literally only got to maybe like, I don't know, one of the first little areas and that was about as far as I got. But uh, playing it now, I've I think I'm maybe about, I don't know, five or six hours in, and according to uh, polls that I've read online, I'm about probably about halfway done with it, but uh, I'm enjoying it thus far. It's a lot of fun. Um, It was released also on Windows and Xbox as well as GameCube. I did not know that... Uh, that's really cool. I mean, I knew the computer, I think, but I don't think I knew Xbox and GameCube. That's really cool. But it follows the adventures of Jade, an investigative reporter, martial artist, and spy hitwoman working with a resistance movement, uh, Iris, to reveal a sinister alien conspiracy. Players control Jade and allies solving puzzles, fighting enemies, and obtaining photographic evidence. Uh, Michael Ansel, creator of the Rayman series, envisioned this game as part of a trilogy. So apparently, I think there's actually a sequel supposed to be coming out. I think I don't think it's been announced yet. So I would love to play this one and beat it before I pick up uh, number two whenever it decides to come out. Um, The game was developed under the codenamed Project BGNE, interesting, by 30 employees of Ubisoft Studio Divisions in Milan. Uh, The game adopts a relatively linear structure. Yeah, I mean, it feels open, but it's not at the same time. But then again, you have to remember, it's also 20 years ago when this game came out. Received poorly, apparently, when it was shown at E3 of 2002, prompted the developers to change the sum of the game's elements, including Jade's design, and so also attempted to streamline the game in order to make it more commercially appealing. It was critically acclaimed and considered one of the greatest video games ever made after the fact. Interesting. I don't think I knew that. Critics praised the game's animation, setting, story, and design. I mean, I am having a lot of fun with it. Uh, The controls are kind of wonky, uh, I admit, at first. You use the D-pad to scroll through your inventory, whether it be to use keys to open up things, uh, a cave-up little bowl, I guess, in order to revive your health, uh, Starco's. Are basically a little like doritos yellow chips is what it looks like in order to revive just one health but the k-bups res- uh, restore your entire health bar you get little yellow hearts kind of like envision how like uh legend of zelda typically gets uh, his red hearts and then uh, or not le- well link you know what i mean uh you obviously find them throughout the game uh, little hearts and it increases your uh, health meter now you get little uh, helper guys along the way you get uh, page who's a a pig i guess homo sapien i guess if you will uh, and then you get this uh, guy called Double H who kind of reminds me of Buzz Lightyear, I guess, in a way, in like a golden suit. He helps you out. He's pretty stupid. But, it, I mean, he's stupid in a funny way. He's like, I'll be right there. And he, like, falls over. And you're like, what the hell? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's funny. But, uh, well, y- you know, it's 20-year-old from now humor. But anyway, I-, I thought it was funny. It's it's considered a commercial failure at launch, but it has a cult following now. There's a full HD remastered version of the game released on Xbox Live Arcade in March 2011 and on the PSN in June 2011 and prequel the second one is actually in development it was announced at e3 of 2017 i pfft. so six years and nothing yet there's a hybrid live action animation fil- film adaptation currently in the works on netflix oh shit that's cool i'd be so down for that i mean well i, I don't know we'll see how they do i mean as of late uh, some video game to film adaptations actually have been doing pretty well but uh so i'm trying to think of uh so r2 is to run r1 allows you to cycle through your camera and you use the left analog stick to uh, move up and down, it's inverted. And then you use your right analog stick, which is also inverted, left to go right, right to go left. You just you, For some reason, I don't know why they made it like that. You just have to get used to it. Gun Valkyrie does the same fucking co- or, uh, control scheme on Xbox, the original Xbox. That's a fun Sega game. Uh, I'll get into that another time. But that the controls on that are so fast. Like, you, you look at the controller, and it's, like, moving. I'm like, what the hell? But... Uh, <laughs> Um, Circle is in order to use the action that it is uh if you cycle through your um inventory to use a key card to open up a door or uh heal yourself or give health to your uh i guess helper partner so i 'm over here with like ten little you know hearts on my health bar and health meter, and then my helper guy only has like two hearts and I'm like, i 'm like that guy goes down in like a minute i mean the a i is eh, helpful in their own right, but it 's definitely not the best a i um <laughs> Uh, excuse me, and then square. What does square do? I'm trying to remember. Okay, so besides R1 to uh, take pictures with X, you can also use circle and you shoot these like little like discs, like out of your hand. You get the uh little glove to shoot the discs after you release uh HH from his uh like little alien held cell, I guess, if you will. You go to a factory and you uh you save him. Um, you're attached to this uh. I guess, resistance movement called Iris, which is obviously trying to take back uh, the planet that they live on because the aliens ended up taking over. It's, it's a lot of fun. I, I'm enjoying it thus far. It's just a little wonky controls. You just got to get, get used to it. It's funky at first. I, I admit that. Um, <clears throat> development. <clears throat> developed by Michael Ansel, the creator of the Rayman video game. That's pretty cool. Uh, at Ubisoft Pictures in Montpelier. A second goal behind Beyond Good and Evil's design was to create a meaningful story and amid player freedom. Ansel said that the linear nature of the gameplay was necessary to convey the story. Player freedom was an experience between parts of the plot. I can get on board with that. I mean, visually, it's really cool. On the PS2, there's like next to no load times. It's like as soon as you go to like the factory or Mama Go Garage or... uh, the slaughterhouse or the factory or whatever, you know, location you have to go to in this game. It literally will show up like what the name of it is, like West Wing or whatever, and it's like 2 seconds later you're at where your next destination is supposed to be. It's so fast. I I mean, even it, it controls really well the way that you run. Oh, that's right. Uh square when you're in the middle of fighting, you fight with X. Uh square allows you to dodge and uh, you can like also use a, a hovercraft and you can use square to like jump over things and X to shoot things when you're on the hovercraft. So I mean, the controls as i stated it it takes a minute to get used to but uh it has a really cool like soundtrack there's a bunch of different like percussion string instruments used there's uh you know fun mini games involved uh, there's scrap metal and you know that you have to uh, pick up in the game and then you also pick up pearls and you use them on the black market to upgrade your hovercraft like It's a lot of fun. Highly, highly recommended. Uh, Beyond Good and Evil receptively received generally positive reviews from critics after the fact. Aggregating review website, Metacritic giving it the Xbox version 87, GameCube 87, and the PS2 86. I don't know why it's doing less. Uh, Xbox at the time could probably handle perhaps better graphics and maybe a faster gameplay, but uh, the Xbox 360 version has 84, PS3 83, and the PC 83. Interesting. So I'd say the PS2 is middle of the road, and that's the one that I had as a kid. And it's also the one that I have now, and I'm playing. And as soon as I'm done talking to you guys, I yeah, I'm gonna go back and <laughs> finish up the game. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm I'm having a uh, legacy-wise, the International Game Developers Association nominated the title for three honors at 2004 Game Developing Choice Awards: Game of the Year, Original Game Character of the Year, Jade. Pretty cool because you don't really see too many female protagonists in this particular kind of element. Uh, excellence in game design. Yeah, it, it handles well. Like I said, the controls are wonky. You got to get used to it uh at at least if you're gonna play older versions but uh other than that yeah i mean musically and uh, the way that it looks it's it's great i mean it's 2002 2003 uh voice acting so you have to remember that i mean it's the sign of the times it's what they had right you can turn subtitles on turn them off uh as of 2020 in news as far as the film adaptation streaming service company netflix announced an action live action animated film adaption based on the video game in development with Detective Pikachu director Rob Letterman. However, as of no updates, as of that time frame, borderline three years ago, no updates have been given for the film. But there you have it. I'm going to be talking four films, Pierce Brosnan related, three 007s, Dante's Peak, uh, four bands, Napster, and, well, I was talking to you guys about Beyond Good and Evil, and I will keep you updated as soon as I beat it, or if I find out more information on this film or game, as well as the sequel. But here it is, episode 86, everybody, let's go. Well, as is tradition as of late, uh, I as soon as I log on, I see something on MSN and it says the best apocalyptic movies of all time. There are 30 of them. I will take a look at their ranking and I will see if I can agree or disagree. Uh, the last one is <clears throat> The Book of Eli. And yeah, it is pretty good. I'm actually glad that it made this list. It's a very, I feel like, underrated kind of uh, Gary Oldman, Mila Kunis, um, Denzel Washington type flick. And the twist, you know, is that he's blind and you don't realize that until borderline near like halfway through, if not near the end, from what I remember, it's been a long time since I've seen it, probably since it came out as well as like when the DVD came out, I uh, probably haven't watched it since then. And it, it still holds up from what I remember. It's been a long time, but I, I liked it. let see what the next one is. Uh, Akira. Yeah. Uh, 31 years after world war three, this 1988, uh, Neo Tokyo classic, uh, Metropolis secret military, uh, Project Threatens to Endanger the City, you know, Tetsuo into a Violent Telepathic History looks to repeat itself. It's completely hand-animated cyberpunk uh, worthy of any reputation, and it's it's a landmark piece of uh, animation uh, history forever. It's such an influence on anything and everything. Uh, Contagion, it's been a while since I've seen that one. Kate Winslet, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, I'd say that one probably gets a pass. I, I, I vaguely remember that one see what else we got here x-men days of future past i want to say i've seen this one i mean for those of you that you know know me or have heard me state it before i'm not the biggest comic book film enthusiast uh uh, although i have been kind of (laughs) collecting like random comic books as of late like if it's video game related or if it's a movie or something and i I mean i don't really go out of my way to be like i gotta pick up the flash or (laughs) you know green lantern or whatever the hell but uh, anyway uh uh, I want to say I've seen this one, but I'm going to say it gets a pass. I don't, I, I don't remember dread. I think I've seen judge dread, the original. I don't know if I've ever seen, uh, the remake to be honest with you. So I'm going to say this one gets a pass. Uh, the host, uh, Oh, it's, it's different than the uh, host. The one that I like from 2020. It's a, uh, looks like it's a, uh, overseas, uh, Asian oriented one. Uh, The Host Follows a Soul Family, so therefore it's, uh, what, Korean. Monster Emerges from the Han River and Goes on a Killing Rampage. Haven't seen this one, but it sounds interesting. Sounds like some weird crap I'd watch. So that one also gets a pass because I've never seen it. Let's see what else we got here. Delicatessen. Never heard of it? Uh, I'm going to say that one gets a pass, too. Nah, I don't know know that one. Escapes New York. Classic, of course. This one should be on this list. I'm glad that it's number 20, or at least on this list it deserves to be higher in my book but you know 1997 Manhattan uh Snake Plissken aka Kurt Russell aka Solid Snake you know Metal Gear Solid all of that it's an iconic film it's even labeled here as one of the most iconic B movies of all time I don't know I wouldn't consider it a B man it's definitely not S tier maybe like how about B plus like A minus or something how about we meet kind of in the middle but uh yeah John Carpenter's Escape from New York I'm glad I made this list it should be higher though Mad Max They put Mad Max above, well, John Carpenter already kind of had a staple for himself with the Halloween series, The Fog, The Thing, and then obviously uh, Big Trouble Little China, which obviously also had Kurt Russell. But uh, this is like, you know, Mel Gibson's, you know, two to force. This is where he like starred out, you know, in these films. It's George Miller's 1979's Mad Max, uh, you know, Biker Gang's uh, Rokotansky, Mel Gibson. You know, it, it put this type of particular post-apocalyptic mayhem with like cars and weaponry and no water and all that like on the map you know then there's obviously road warrior and beyond thunderdome with tina turner rest in peace tina turner i mean yeah yeah i think this one also deserves to be higher but above escape Uh, uh, man they're almost like tied man they're both so good let's see what else we got here Uh, edge of tomorrow i want to say i've seen it but i think i saw it in like clips i vaguely vaguely uh, remember this one so that one gets a pass. Tom Cruise. Cloverfield Lane. I was really hoping that John Goodman was just a nuts like off the wall crazy individual, but obviously it ends up being um, you know, about Cloverfield and the whole giant fucking octopusy. <laughs> no 007 pun intended there. Uh <laughs> it, it it ended up being a giant like alien type of uh, apocalyptic film and like I said I was hoping John Goodman was just crazy but it it was still okay and what it does it deserve to be above Mad Max and uh you know Escape from New York hell no Quiet Place I'm glad that it's on this list I don't think it deserves to be above the other two that I just mentioned as well but A Quiet Place is good sure post-apocalyptic movies one of the best absolutely sure I mean it was really cool the fact that it was all essentially silent really uh, Zombieland, sure, I would say this one could also be on this list, it, it definitely blended the horror comedic aspect, like, for modern audiences, you know, Woody Harrelson, Emma Stone, uh, Jesse Eisenberg, it, it was great, uh, once again, I don't think it deserves to be above those other ones, I mean, those are the front runners. they started, like, that kind of, like, apocalyptic type stuff, you know, fuck, man, I, I think a boy and his dog should be on this list, and I can almost guarantee it's probably not going to be either, uh, Avengers Endgame, that, uh, fuck, no. Fuck no. Best Apocalyptic... No. Fuck no. Get out of here. No. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. I'm glad that the Planet of the Apes movies are on here. I would go more... uh, Yeah, the new ones are... They're a little more captivating compared to the old ones. The old ones are rather dated, but they're still interesting for what they are. I I have the entire set. I need to dig into those more. Uh, What do we got here? Number 13. Hey. Okay. All right. I wished it into fruition, and I'm glad that it's on here. A Boy and His Dog. This is a really, really cool uh, traverse post-nuclear war wasteland in 2021. Um, Vic, a.k.a. Don Johnson's character uh, and his dog, you know, essentially he talks to his dog and his dog answers and they talk back to each other. It's like a sheep Dude, Yeah, this is a great fucking movie. It's really cool. Highly, I think, underrated, but I'm glad it made this list. So therefore, hopefully uh, it intrigues some people to watch it dawn of the dead okay i'm glad this one's also on this list too and i'm glad yeah i night of the living dead is great of course it started everything dawn of the dead to me is probably my favorite one and then a day shortly thereafter that it's not that i don't like night of the living dead i guess i just like the crazy destruction and the uh, practical effects and all that you know and uh but uh, yeah dawn is great i'm glad that it's on this list too number 12 (coughs) snowpiercer number 11 never heard of it gets a pass chris evans in it apparently uh, Twelve Monkeys, yeah, I'm also glad that this is on this list because you know Brad Pitt and uh, fucking Bruce Willis, they nailed it. Great, great uh, film in uh, 1990. I, I, I loved it. All right, moving on. Number ten. Number nine is 28 Days Later. It's been a long, to, probably since these movies came out was the last time I saw these movies. Like 28 days and 28 weeks later, or whatever. It's been a long time since I watched those. I don't, from my memory, I don't think it deserves to be this high up. But sure, I'm glad that I guess it's on this list terminator yeah absolutely totally number eight i'd probably put it at maybe like number five or maybe even like number one It just all depend like here what what do i have i had what so on this list we had a boy and his dog here i will write down mine i had a what mad max terminator escape from new york okay so there's number there's four right there boy and his dog mad max terminator escape from new york and uh, yeah, okay. Let me see what. Let me see what the other ones we got here. Maybe I'll make my own little list of a uh, top five here. Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, it's funny. I'll put that one on there as well. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad that it's on here. It's great, dude. Uh, it solid, solid horror comedy, like British humor, and it works. I thought it was great. Uh, the Matrix, post apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. You know, it features groundbreaking fight choreography from the Wachowski Brothers. Recognizable style captivates audiences 20 years later after the fact that since it came out in 99, you know, the CGI is rather dated, but it still works, though. It earns it earns this spot in at least the top 10. So I'm going to put Matrix on there and make my own little list here. Uh, Stalker. Uh, Yeah, I can see its importance. Okay, how about if I add it? And I will let you know what I... Yeah, it, it's interesting. This Russian art house flick, I already talked about it before. I'd say at least watch it once and make up your own decision. It's not that I don't want to ever rewatch it, but maybe like down the road. Uh, it's not that it messed me up or anything. It's just, it's a challenging story. It debates philosophy, nihilism, truth, and beauty. And just, I don't know, it's surrealistic, immensely rewarding experience with its visuals. Its Its landscape is interesting, known as The Zone. It's all you know, Russian. you got to read subtitles. It's, it's worth a watch. It's just fucking weird. I, I don't know, man. I've watched a lot of weird shit, but okay. I'm going to put Stalker on there. I'll make my own little uh, subjective list here. What do we got here? Uh, number four is Mad Max Fury Road. So, man, we got two Mad Maxes on this top ten yeah, because Fury Road was fucking badass. I almost like Fury Road more than the original three. Nothing against the original three. I love those two, but Fury Road was just fucking incredible, man. It was so good. I was thoroughly impressed that a newer film, you know, trumped an older one. Uh Wally, no, that no. That one does not no, no. I mean, I like Wally, but it does not need to be on this list. No. I would have to do like a separate subcategory, like best post-apocalyptic, like I don't know, non I don't know, gritty action films, I guess, per per se. Children of Men, uh I've seen it. And yeah, it is. Okay. Children and men needs to be on this list too. That one will probably be low in my uh, opinion. Personally, it is good though. It is incredibly important. It's been a while since I've seen it. 2027 women are, uh, infertile and the youngest person in the world, uh, 18 has just died. Uh, there's like a little black girl, like in a barn. And I remember she's like naked and like pregnant or something. And it's, it's weird. It's, it's a very interesting here. Let me uh, read you guys a little bit. Uh, clive owens mission is to get her to safety this particular little girl the film remains memorable for its realistic shaky cam combat yeah it does a good job with its uh not necessarily found well yeah found footage stock footage whatever the fuck you want to call it impressive one-shot scenes including one uh inside a packed getaway car that's very true it's a bleak outlook on the world uh set in 2021 or excuse me set in 2027 uh it's one of uh the director's best it's masterful of children and men feels just as impactful upon every uh rewatch it's it's one of those i don't know you can't like unwatch i i haven't seen it in a long time well, not a long time but probably over 10 years well i guess that is i guess a long time maybe not 10 maybe a little less it, it's good it's just been a while i don't i i remember it but not entirely uh the road oh i'm glad the road made it man cormac mccarthy rest in peace he just passed vigo mortensen the road i loved this movie uh, Viggo Mortensen, you know, obviously from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Leatherface, the original, uh, with the Excalibur, uh, fucking trailer, so badass, where he finds the chainsaw in the water, you know, obviously mimicking Excalibur, um, Vigo Mortensen, aka Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, dude, this is a really good book, and it's very rare that usually books, um, translate well to film, and as far as verbatim, and this one's pretty damn close from my memory, uh cody mcphee plays his son it's basically just them two you know be, uh, yeah just post-apocalyptic trying to survive uh you know people are cannibals trying to kill him and they're trying to collect supplies and he's just trying to be a good dad and raise his son pretty much you know it's it's pretty gritty it's i'd say yeah okay all right let me see what do i have here how many do i have One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, i have 10 exactly okay cool okay i'm gonna put children of men at number 10 and put stalker at nine Shaun of the Dead at 8. I'm going to put Matrix at 7. I'm going to put Boy and His Dog at 6. Ah uh, Man, it's getting tough here. Uh, fuck. I'm going to put Mad Max at 5. I'm going to put Escape from New York at 4. I'm going to put... Fury Road at three. And then I'm going to put the road because I'm going to say number two. And my number one is going to be Terminator then. So here we go. Here's my little subjective list we got going on here. Children of Men is number 10. Number nine is Stalker, 1979 uh, Tarkovsky film. Eight is Shaun of the Dead. Seven is Matrix. Boy is Dog is six. Mad Max, the original with uh, Mel Gibson, is five. Four is Escape from New York. Uh, Pat, Not Patrick Swayze. Excuse me. Fucking Kurt Russell. Oh, they kind of look alike you know rest in peace Patrick Swayze uh three is Mad Max Fury Road it, it was so good The Road with Viggo Mortensen's number two Terminator the classic James Cameron with Arnold Schwarzenegger is my number one so there you have their list of top 30 and there's my top 10 of best apocalyptic films of all time all right moving on to the 10 scariest horror films of all time that's uh, a list that they got going on here uh It Chapter 1 2017 fuck off no scariest movie of all time fuck off you kidding me Continue reading. There we go. That's what I wanted. Insidious. Okay, sure. Why not? How about if I make my own little list like I just did? All right, so we'll start with Insidious. Sure, I'll, I'll put it on there with their list, and I'll make a subjective list. Sinister 2012. That one creeped me out when I first saw it. Sure, I, I will keep that one on there. Halloween 1978, of course, of course. It, yeah, it's, it's so good. It, it's incredible. The Ring 2002. Sure, I'll put that on my list. And I'll make a little... Subjective uh, list we got going on here. Texas Chainsaw, of course. TCM 74, of course. The Shining 1980, okay, all right. they They're making better uh, uses of films here because the new... it. Come on, fuck off. Get out of here. Conjuring. Okay. Hereditary. Yeah, I, I could see that on this list. Yeah. And, of course, Exorcist is on there, too. That movie's still fucking... Maybe I need to... <sighs> Down the road, maybe I'll rewatch that one. I don't know, dude. That movie fucking scared the shit out of me as a kid. I haven't seen it since. Okay, what do I got here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, uh, I'm going to say number nine is The Ring. Or you know what? I'm going to put The Shining, because it never freaked me out. I just thought it was a good movie, The Shining. So I'm going to say The Ring is number eight. Uh, I'm gonna say seven is insidious, sinister is six, five is Halloween, it had a special place, it scared me as a kid, not so much now, now I just look at it like, wow, it's a great, no, you know what, I'm gonna put, okay, I'm gonna put, hang on, Halloween's gonna be number four, I'm gonna put Texas Chainsaw 74 as number five, uh, and then I'm going to go Hereditary 3, Conjuring 2, and Exorcist 1 because, dude, there's just something about that movie that still just fucking freaks me out. So number 9, The Shining, 8, The Ring, 7, Insidious, 6, Is Sinister, 5, Is Texas Chainsaw 4. It's just, it's just a great movie. Didn't scare me. Halloween 4, scared me as a kid, or not Halloween 4, uh, <laughs> Halloween 4 and 5 are just guilty pleasures. I love those. Uh, Halloween 1978, scared me as a kid, not so much now. It just To me, it's just a great movie. Uh, hereditary it creeped me out when it was in theaters and conjuring same thing all 10 years ago you know i was like 24 25 when i saw it in theaters and yeah it creeped me out and then the exorcist i saw when i was like 14 maybe 13 15 around there and i haven't seen it since gave me nightmares for two weeks and i still kind of refuse to re-watch that one so <laughs> there you have it two lists post-apocalyptic and 10 scariest movies of all time all right now let's get into some actual movies Going on, guys. Apparently, I think I'm on a little bit of a uh, Pierce Brosnan kick here, but I'm going to be talking about Dante's Peak, 1997, Uh, PG-13, hour 48 minutes, has a six out of ninety five thousand. Yeah, six, six and a half. You know, around there is probably about right. It's it's a pretty good uh, disaster uh, film, and I I thought it was pretty good. A volcanologist arrives at a countryside town recently named the second most desirable place to live in America, discovering that the long dormant volcano Dante's Peak may wake up at any moment. Uh, Pierce Brosnan is the volcanologist, aka geologist. It is an action adventure thriller, and I, I'd say they should even make like a genre called, you know, a disaster. But whatever. Directed by Roger Donaldson. Let's see what else this individual did, because I'm not quite sure. Uh, World's fastest Indian. Okay, that one's pretty cool. The uh, one that came out in 2005 with um, Anthony Hopkins. Species. He directed that one in '95. Uh, two years prior, he also directed uh, Cocktail. Okay, all right. And I talked about cocktail in an episode ago or two. And, uh, yeah, it's okay, cocktail. I don't remember the ending, the twist ending, where his fucking friend that he decided to do the bar with, you know, kills himself. That was pretty nutty. I don't remember that at all. But uh, starring Piers Brosnan, uh, you know, a.k.a. 007, two years later. Or, no, actually, he did this film as... No, hang on. Okay, so this one's 97. 95, he did Goldeneye, which I'm going to be talking about here momentarily. Um, and then, obviously, Linda Hamilton, a.k.a. Uh, Sarah Connor from a uh, good old Terminator uh, who else is in this? Charles Hallahan, who is in a he, I believe he's in The Thing if I'm not mistaken one of the uh, scientists or perhaps he's in uh, Alien I'm not quite sure he's in, he looks very familiar from some of those early like sci-fi uh, type films uh, Zee Ma is also in this the uh, uh, Asian actor he is very familiar as well looking at him in the face Grant Heslov is also very familiar just looking at him in the face as well Um, I don't really recognize anybody else. All right. Uh, Storyline. Harry Dalton, a.k.a. Pierce Brosnan, and Mayor Rachel Wando, a.k.a. Linda Hamilton of Dante's Peak, convinced the city's councilmen and other volcanologists that the volcano right above Dante's Peak is indeed dangerous. People's safety is being set against economical interests. Taglines, it says, exploding soon. Ha, 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 ha. PG-13 for disaster-related peril and gore. Sure, why not? We'll see what we got here going on trivially. Cast and crew of the movie found themselves in a distribution race with 20th Century Fox, uh, which was producing Volcano 97 at the time. Due to a sped-up production schedule, the movie uh, reached theaters almost three months earlier than Volcano and actually had a better box office success. The volcanic ash used in most of the film was actually really fine newspaper shavings, and you can kind of tell now that you think about it and look at it. All crater sheen, uh, sheens, yep. Sheen's in the Ocean. Yes, I'm Sean Connery, and I'm about to be talking about 007 anyway, but I'm going to be talking about Pierce Brosnan 007s. We will get to Sean Connery's movies later on in my episodes. Um, <laughs> all crater scenes <laughs> were shot at Mount St. Helens. Most of the film's exteriors were shot in Wallace, Idaho. Okay, I've got to stop, Sean. Uh, Dante's peak and surrounding scenery were then digitally added. Uh, a great many special effects in the film were practical special effects using world, real world models or full size properties and vehicles as well as miniatures for, uh, you know, depth perception as well as um, making it look realistic. And you, you could totally tell, but it works, though. It oh, God, I love that kind of stuff when they make miniatures and there's the uh, forced perspective to make it look like it's larger or smaller than it actually is. So damn cool. Love that type of stuff. All right. All right. What do we got here? Released February 7th, 1997. Also known as Nuit L'Ouadante. Uh, I'm assuming it looks like some sort of French, perhaps. Uh, filming in Wallace, Idaho. Production companies, Universal Pictures, Pacific Western. Box office uh, budget, 116 million. Wow, that's that's a lot. Grossed 178 million. I'm sure a lot of it went to probably special effects and you know, trying to probably get everything in one fucking take. Like, good luck. Anyway. Uh, so, Wiki. It is the first, or excuse me, it is the third film collaboration between Gail Ann Hurd and Linda Hamilton, who both previously worked in the first Tuminator. Uh, did I say Tuminator? I didn't mean to say Turd-minator. How about that? Oh, that's a good one. Actually, kind of just I like that one. I'm a patent pen that one. Go to the office, the patent office for that one. Uh, they worked together on the first Tuminator uh, films. <coughs> excuse me, I'm choking on laughter here. Uh, production wise, principal uh, photography began May 6, 1996, basically a year prior. The film was shot in uh, Wallace, Idaho, as I stated. Exterior shots of Point Doom Post Office in Malibu, California, where they used uh, USGS's David A. Johnston Cascades Volcano Observatory headquarters uh, in Vancouver, Washington. A facility named after David A. Johnston, a young scientist who precisely predicted the volatility of the May 18, 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption. A scene involving a geological robot and trapped scientist shot inside the crater of Mount St. Helens uh, by a brief appearance of Mount Adams, a dormant 12,776-foot peak. Wow. Uh, the scene itself was actually filmed on the tarmac of Van Nuys Airport, uh, while the Mount Adams image was composited in later. Production was completed August 31, 1996. Extensive special effects surrounding certain aspects of the film, such as lava and pyroclastic uh, flows and plumes, were created by digital domain banned from The Ranch Entertainment, and CIS in Hollywood. Computer-generated imagery, CGI, bleh, you know, but <coughs> it, it's, it's dated, but it works for what it is. Uh, mostly coordinated and supervised by Patrick McClung, Roy uh, Arbogast, Lori J. Nelson, Richard Stutzman, and Dean Miller. Although films, uh, excuse me, used considerable amounts of CGI, the volcanic ash in the film was created using cellulose insulation manufactured by Regal Industries in uh, Indiana. Between visuals, miniatures, as I stated, and animation, over 300 technicians were directly involved in the production aspects of special effects alone. That's awesome. That's really cool. Uh, Musical score composed by John Frizzell and James Newton Howard. Uh, They wrote the main theme and a number of cues. What else we got here? Contents of the CD release can also be found actually on the Region 1 DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, Home Media, released on VHS and Laserdisc, August 19th, 1997, which was my copy. It was actually sealed. Uh, Probably worth at most like five, maybe ten bucks. I decided to open it up because I'm like, dude, I want to watch it anyway. You know, so whatever. Critically uh, received, Dante's Peak uh, had mostly negative reviews compared to the uh, generally mixed reviews of its rival. I'm assuming uh, Volcano. Rotten Tomatoes gave it 28% based on 32 reviews, comparing it to 50% of 46 reviews for Volcano. Uh, Maybe I need to rewatch that one, too. Uh, The Consensus states Dante's Peak works when things are on fire, but everything else from dialogue to characters is scathingly bad. I didn't think so, personally. I mean, I guess that's obviously their opinion. It's subjective. Uh, Critic Byron Lafayette of Under the Lens praised the film for showcasing special effects, thank you, and doing its best to take realistic take on what would happen if a volcano erupted in a small town. And yeah, yeah, I'd say rightly so. It is a popular film viewing and discussion in science classes, especially geologist ones, and receptively in the US for an educational purpose. That's cool. I mean, sure, why not? You know? Uh, there you have it. There's Dante's Peak. Uh, just the peak, if you will, of uh, my Pierce Brosnan kick. All right, on to the next thing. Alright, what did I say? Well, two years prior, Pierce Brosnan also did this film, GoldenEye, 1995, PG-13, two hours and ten minutes. I have a VHS copy, and I'm currently watching it now, and it still holds up, man. I, I really like this uh, Ian Fleming, I guess, adaptation, if you will. It has a 7.2 out of 264,000 reviews, and rightly so. Uh, I feel like a lot of these 007 films are usually anywhere between 6.9 to about a 7.5, usually. Uh, action adventure thriller and rightly so years after a friend and fellow double o agent is killed in a joint mission a russian crime syndicate steals a secret space weapon program known as goldeneye james bond has to stop them from using it directed by martin campbell let's see what else this individual did because i'm not quite sure Uh, he obviously did this film he did uh, casino royale with uh daniel craig so that's pretty cool vertical limit i don't know if i've ever seen that one uh, in 2000, Mask of Zorro 98, seen it, but been a long, long, long time, so I, I vaguely remember that one, uh, written by, obviously, Ian Fleming, as I stated, uh, starring Pierce Brosnan and Sean Bean as 006, aka uh, Alec Trevlin, if I'm not mistaken, is his name in the film, yep, that's his name, uh, it also features Famke Janssen, aka Xenia on a top, uh, who also plays Jean Grey in the uh, X-Men films joe don baker as jack wade judy dench as M. she's a great actress a great english actress uh, robbie coltrane who else we got here uh, alan cumming plays boris he's also very well known i've seen him in a lot of stuff i can't think of anything in particular but i've definitely seen his face uh, what else we got here so storyline when a deadly satellite weapon system falls into the wrong hands only 007 can save the world from a certain disaster big surprise he's always saving the world armed with his license to kill bond races to russia in search of the stolen access codes for the goldeneye awesome space weapon that can fire devastating electromagnetic pulse toward earth 007 is up against an enemy who anticipates his every move a mastermind motivated by years of simmering hatred aka 006 alec trevlin bond also squares off against xenia on a top aka famka jensen aka uh jean gray from x-men an assassin who uses her pleasure as her ultimate weapon aka her legs she basically you know kills a guy with her thighs and she gets off on it and it's like like sultry sexy yet like disturbing at the same time tagline here is nobody does it like bond and i think it deserves a better tagline than that like i don't know whatever i don't know or uh, i'm trying to think of like i I couldn't think of a tagline i was really trying to think of one like off you know, hand, and I was like, yep, I got nothing. All right, License to Kill 1989 used a contest advertising campaign to help generate interest for this film. The winner of the contest was promised a cameo in the role for the next James Bond film. Unfortunately, due to many production issues, work on this film did not begin for many years. Yeah, I can can see that for, what, was that six years, five? Yeah, five, six years. Nevertheless, the contest winner was given a scene after the long delay. She did not have a speaking part, but you can see her in a lovely gold and black evening dress, looking over Zenya on a top's, a uh, shoulder as she plays baccarat against bond okay so that's near the beginning of the film uh featuring the highest bungee jump from a structure in a film uh that's pretty much at the beginning when he jumps from the dam the drop was over 722 feet man who did the jump has a cameo as a black-haired tiger helicopter uh pilot shot by uh, Zenya on top yeah that's right she steals the helicopter from a, it looks like a destroyer or cruiser type ship Um, computer CGI was actually used to create the famous gun barrel opening, making this the first film in the, uh, Bond series franchise to use such CGI. An East German architect and a Russian civil engineer were present during the construction of the Russian sites and interior sites. They refused to have their names credited and I don't blame them because they probably, they'd probably be fucking dead by now uh first completely original james bond film without any reference to ian fleming novel or short story so excuse me for referencing the saying that oh he was involved with this one so i mean i i just figured as much only because he's famous for making well james bond famous so all right if it has nothing to do with him then you know he obviously inspired this film so bravo to you mr ian fleming you know rest in peace all right here we go uh Released after a six-year hiatus in the series causing legal disputes, uh, M was also recast as Judy Dench, according to Wikipedia. The role of Miss Moneypenny was also recast with Carolyn Bliss being replaced by Samantha Bond. The film accumulated a worldwide gross over $350 million, uh, considerably better than the Dalton films, oh wow, without taking inflation into account. It received positive reviews, critics viewing Brosnan as a definite improvement over his predecessor. Yeah, I've, I've always felt uh, I've only seen like the later Bonds and I've seen like the first few, like the first like two or three and then like probably the last like, I don't know, five or so, um, if not, maybe more. And I have always felt with what I was able to have seen that Pierce Brosnan just fits Bonds role. Just I don't know. It's just I feel like that's what he should look like. And yeah, on a personal level, I guess. Uh, geez, you know, I mean, in May of 1993, MGM announced a 17th James Bond film, a.k.a. this one, to be based on a screenplay by Michael France, studying the script by traveling to Russia to interview former KGB agents. Wow. In August of 93, France had turned this draft into continuing to work on the script. Despite France's screenplay being completed by January, production was pushed back with no concrete start. In April of 94, Timothy Dalton uh, resigned from the role. Uh, in an interview from uh, Dalton in 2014, he revealed that he agreed with uh, Broccoli's expectation, Broccoli being the uh, production uh, individual, uh, excuse me, burping from apparently peanut butter and jelly and water, whatever, but could not commit to appearing in four or five more films. The further work was done on the screenplay throughout 94, Francis' screenplay introducing the character of Augustus Trevlin, Bond's MI6 superior, and defector to the Soviet Union as the main villain. Oh, boy, what else we got here? Wade did not receive an official credit. Uh, Kevin Wade, uh, who polished the script, uh, was acknowledged in naming Jack Wade the CIA character that he created basically after himself. Okay, I get it. It was not based on an Ian Fleming work. As I stated, the title GoldenEye traces its origins to the name of Fleming's Jamaican estate, where he wrote the Bond novels. That's pretty fucking cool. He gave a number of origins, Fleming did, uh, for the name of his estate, including Carson McCullough's Reflections in a GoldenEye and Operation GoldenEye, a contingency plan that Fleming himself developed during the Second World War in case of a Nazi invasion through Spain. Wow, that's, that's a trip. Oh, man. Although released six years after License to Kill, world politics had changed dramatically in the interim. GoldenEye was the first Bond film to be produced after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the end of the Cold War. There was a uh, doubt over the character's relevance in the modern world. Uh, I could see that, especially just shortly thereafter. Some in the film's industry felt that it would be a futile Bond adaptation to make a comeback and that it was best left as an icon of the past. Uh, Okay, well, I guess you were proved wrong with a $350 gross worldwide. Uh, The producers even thought of new concepts for the series, such as a period set piece in the 60s, a female 007, or a black James Bond. Well, I'm glad they didn't go any of those routes. Because you know, stick to the original, right? Uh, um, ultimately, they chose to return to the basics of the series, not following the sensitive and caring bond of the Dalton films or the political correctness that started to permeate the decade. The film came to be seen as a success- can't speak English. <laughs> the film came to be seen as a successful revitalization, and it effectively adapted the series for the nineties. It's an early indication that Bond is portrayed as far less tempestuous. Tempestuous, excuse me, than Timothy Dalton's Bond from eighty nine. Uh, principal photography began the 16th of January 95, continued until June, so it lasted about six months. Uh, unable to film at Pinewood Studios, the usual studio for Bond films, uh, because it had been reversed for the film first night. Instead, of the uh, little time to find a space which required the number of large set scales needed for production, they found a Rolls Royce factory at Leaves Leavitt, Leavesden, sure Aerodome in a. Hertfordshire, what? what I don't, it's always some sort of shire. Okay, it's somewhere in Lord of the Rings town, uh, New Zealand, uh, London, England. How about? Well, I'll just be a jackass and say that. Sure, why not? <laughs> which had a wide, tall, and open hangers that were uniquely suited to be converted into stages for a new studio. Uh, the bungee jump scene was filmed at the Contra Dam, uh, not the Konami Contra, the classic up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. Select B A start, which actually started on. Uh, gosh, dang it. I can't even think of uh, Gradius actually it uh, started on Gradius the Konami game but anyway back to 007 uh filmed uh, the Contradam is actually in uh, Switzerland uh, the actual MI6 headquarters were used for external views of M's office some of the scenes in St Petersburg were actually shot in London the Epsom Downs uh racecourse doubled as the airport to reduce expenses and security concerns as the second unit until Russia uh, sent required bodyguards. French Navy provided full use of the frigate Lafayette and their newest helicopter, the Eurocopter Tiger. That's pretty cool. The French premiere of this film was actually cancelled uh, due to the involvement of Greenpeace. Uh, the sequences involving the armored train were filmed uh, at a, a a Nene... <laughs> a Nen Valley Railway, sure, near Peterborough, England. It's always some sort of like blah 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 England. Like I I don't understand the I mean, you come over to the States and we're just like, hi, welcome to downtown. Like, that's just, <laughs> I don't know. I don't understand the. Welcome to Pfluggen, Blügen, Blüstervershire, England. Well, over here in California, we just call it <laughs> San Diego. Like, I don't know. Just, I guess if you're from England, it makes more sense. I'm not trying to make fun of anything. It's just. I thought it was funny. The train composed of a British um, Rail Class 20 diesel electronic locomotive and a pair of Mark 1 coaches, all three heavily disguised to resemble a Soviet armored train for that uh, railway sequence. That's pretty cool. Effects-wise, the last one was special effects per, uh, supervisor Derek Mennings, to whom it was dedicated. A major contributor uh, was Miniatures at the time. Also, the first Bond film to use CGI, as I mentioned. The climax on the satellite dish uses scenes in Arecibo, a model built by Metting's team and scenes shot with stuntmen in Britain. Of course it was. Large stunt sequences in the film was the tank chase. Yeah, that was actually really cool in the uh, city. That was really cool. A Russian T-54 tank on loan from East England Military Museum modified with the addition of fake explosives for reactive armor panels. <clears throat> excuse me, choking on nothing. To avoid destroying the pavement on the city streets of St. Petersburg, the steel off-road tracks uh, were replaced with rubber-shoed tracks for the British chieftain tank, uh, where the Eng- England East Military Museum is actually based. For the con- confrontation between Bond and Trevelyan inside the antenna cradle, Director Campbell decided to take inspiration from Bond's fight with Red Grant in Russia with Love. Brosnan and uh, Sean Bean did all the stunts themselves except for the one take where there was one thrown against the wall. Brosnan injured his hand while filming this extended ladder sequence, making producers delay his scenes in the film uh the one in the Severnaya early, or excuse me, and film the ones in the Severnaya earlier. All these weird like I don't know, dude, I don't speak I mean I speak Spanish and English like you know, I'm I'm trying to learn French and German, but damn, like some of these weird freaking words I'm like what the hell is this? I mean, for instance, here, listen to this. The opening 220-meter bungee jump at Arkhangelsk. What is this? I don't know, some sort of, like, I don't know, little subsidiary suburban town in, like, Mordor and Lord of the Rings? They bungee jumped off of Mordor's Arkhangelsk. A shot of the Contra Switzerland, in St. Petersburg, Fugitshire, England. Whatever. I don't know. I feel like an asshole now. I'm not trying to be a jerk. i just irritated that I don't know what the hell I'm trying to say with these fucking locations here in either britain or some of these actors names i'm like dude i'm having a hard time with this voted the best movie stunt of all time apparently in 2002 the uh opening bungee jump sequence is what i was trying to convey besides being an asshole uh set a record for the highest bungee jump off of a fixed structure for 722 feet as i stated before the ending of the pre-credits sequence where bond is jumping from the airplane featuring jacques Melnuit riding the uh motorcycle to the edge and jumping B.G. Worth diving after the plane was actually a working aircraft, and Worth adding to the part of the difficulty the stunt was the kerosene striking his face. Yeah, I can probably agree with that. Uh, the fall of communism in Russia is the main focus of the opening titles designed by Daniel Kleinman, who took over from Maurice Binder after his death, or Binder, I'm not quite sure how to, yeah, Bender, insert Girder here, Futurama classic, shout out to that, after his death in 1991. They show the collapse and destruction of several structures associated with the Soviet Union, such as the Red Star, statues of the communist leaders, notably Joseph Stalin, and the hammer and sickle. According to producer Michael G. Wilson, some communist parties protested against socialist symbols being destroyed not by governments, but by bikini-clad women. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Why can't we have bikini-clad women over here to, you know, love on my, uh, you know, sickle and hammer over here, if you know what I mean. Uh, I'm... I'm not trying to be rude. I just thought it was funny. Uh, Especially certain Indian communist parties, which threatened to boycott the film. Uh, Product placement. First one bound by BMW's three-picture deal. So the producers were offered BMW's latest roadster, the BMW Z3. Featured in the five months before its release, 007 model sold within a day of being available to order. For the film, a convertible Z3 is equipped with the usual Q refinements. Uh, ten years later, the Hollywood Reporter listed it as one of the most successful product placements in recent years. Uh, I can get on board with that. A modified Omega Seamaster Professional Diver 300M wristwatch features a spy gadget device used several times in the film, concealing a cutting laser, detonator remote, the first time Bond was shown to be wearing a watch by Omega, while the scene of the tank running through a truck full of drinks was storyboarded with a Pepsi truck. Perrier, the uh, bubble water, signed in a deal to be featured providing around 90,000 cans for the scene. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, Music-wise, it's great. I mean, Tina Turner does the uh, intro. You know, rest in peace, Tina. I know I mentioned you in a Beyond Thunderdome earlier, and then she does the theme song, "Golden Eye," written by Bono, actually uh, from YouTube. I'm not the biggest YouTube fan, but Tina Turner is great, and the Edge, apparently. Uh, you know, so shout out to that. Uh, that's that's great in July of 95 teaser trailer for Goldeneye was attached to the Prince of Roger, Roger Donaldson's film Species after its debut so I'm assuming Species came out and then they did the trailer for a uh, Goldeneye there shortly after so that's pretty interesting of course he is able to promote both of his films uh release and reception what do we got here what do I got yeah uh I don't see any freaking like score oh here we go GoldenEye posted the largest revenue increase over its predecessor of any Bond film, which an adjusted to inflation. It grossed 83% more worldwide than any preceding Bond film, including 1989's License to Kill, which came out a couple years prior. Okay, here we go. Reviews Rotten Tomato, 80%. Metacritic, 65%. Cinema score, A minus on an A to F. Roger Ebert, here we go. This is what I want to read. Three out of four stars prosnan yeah that was pro- okay so beers Bierce- <laughs> beers prosnan yeah what the fuck apparently i'm dyslexic. yes i said dyslexic, meaning i know i'm dyslexic uh that was an accident <laughs> oh boy uh bond according to roger ebert somehow more sensitive more vulnerable more psychologically complete than the previous ones also commenting on bond's loss of innocence since the previous films okay sure uh several reviewers lauded m's appraisal of bond as a sexist misogynist dinosaur you have to remember dude this was written like years ago like it's not uh, whatever i'm just gonna move on from that whatever Uh, la times said it was a middle-aged entity anxious to appear trendy at all costs i don't agree with that personally i mean it's you go to a movie to be entertained and just like you know when you go to a comedy show like yeah there's gonna be hecklers there's gonna the comedian might just give you shit for sitting down in the audience and listening to what he has to say you go there to be entertained i mean if you get offended that's on you but it's just a movie like just take it for what it is in my opinion you know anyway uh, awards uh it won special visual effects in 96 but lost to braveheart and apollo 13 respectively those are yeah i yeah those are standout films i i, I get that i, I okay yeah The second and final Bond film to be adapted to a novel by novelist John Gardner. Oh, wow. Okay. In 95, Topps comic books, uh, aka, you know, Topps also did what uh, baseball cards and so forth. Script adapted uh, Don McGregor with art by Rick Magyar, or Magyar, excuse me. That's pretty cool that they had a little uh, comic book uh, slash, like, um, you know, anyway. Also in 95, Tiger Electronics little handhelds released a third-person shooter handheld in two different variants. A gamepad with an LCD display. Cross shaped and then uh, also a variant shaped like a pistol grip with a trigger used to shoot and other buttons on the rear. That's pretty cool. Two editions were slightly different. I almost want to see what those go for now. I'm going to see if I can find those. I'm going to say eBay. We'll pull up uh, what? GoldenEye Tiger Electronics to see what pops up. Oh, wow. The pistol grip one in box, well, I guess in wrapping, I guess, if you will, still wrapped up, goes for about 450 bucks. if it's still in package. Uh, if it's opened, almost $100, which is still pretty incredible. Uh, I'm just going to throw this out there since I pulled up Tiger Electronics. I see these here too. Uh, Castlevania II, the NES game, Simon's Quest, there was a Tiger Electronics, uh, almost $360. That's incredible. Cinderella, uh, $360 in package. Batman, the LCD game, the, uh, Michael Keaton from 1989, 100, or 88, 89, I always forget the year, excuse me, uh, LCD, you know, obviously display, 170 in package, what else we got? I'm not even, I'm getting off topic here, I wasn't trying to, but wow, that's, that's crazy, all right, uh, excuse me, a version of GoldenEye was developed as a racing game intended to be released by, uh, for Virtual Boy, but obviously the Virtual Boy, uh, was canceled and so was the release of that game as well. Uh, the, Nintendo actually announced the remake, obviously, uh, in 2010 for, uh, the, you know, supposed new consoles that were coming out at the time, but obviously there's the, uh, classic one on, uh, N64, Goldeneye, and then the follow-up with, a uh, World Is Not Enough. I'm surprised, well, Tomorrow Never Dies was, uh, the follow-up film to this film, Goldeneye, but Tomorrow Never Dies actually came out on, uh, PS1. But, uh, there you have it. Uh, 20 minutes on Goldeneye. I had a lot more than I thought I would, and, uh, pfft. While I'm at it, let's get on to some other uh, Pierce Brosnan Bond films. Alright, well, moving on to another Bond-related Pierce Brosnan film, Tomorrow Never Dies. The uh, consecutive, uh, the second one within I guess the series of three that he did, um, nineteen ninety seven, PG thirteen, hour fifty nine minutes has a six and a half out of two hundred thousand reviews, and yeah, I can get on board with that because I mean it's it's good in its own right. I don't find it as captivating as the first one, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> um, but it's definitely uh, still enjoyable nonetheless. Uh, obviously it's about James Bond, Pierce Brosnan, setting out to stop a media mogul planning to induce war between China and the UK in order to obtain exclusive global media coverage directed by Roger Spotswood. And let's see what else this uh, guy did here. Uh, shoot to kill in 88. I've heard of that one. Uh, he did the sixth day. Oh, directed that one in 2000. And that one's pretty bad. I mean, that has me in it. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's my Arnold Schwarzenegger. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. He directed that as well. (coughs) <coughs> Just a couple of years after the fact. Uh, starring Pierce Brosnan, Jonathan Price and Michelle Yeoh. Um, obviously, Pierce Brosnan is James Bond. Jonathan Price is Elliot Carver, the villain, essentially, the media mogul. Uh, Jonathan Price is... Uh, The um, guy who's in Jurassic Park 1993 who gets eaten on the toilet and they're like, oh, he left us. He left us, that guy. He's also in Brazil, the uh, Criterion Collection. Pretty bizarre film with um, Robert De Niro. Terry Hatcher plays Paris Carver, his wife, who happens to cheat, obviously, with uh, James Bond. Uh, Joe Don Baker plays Wade again. Vincent Schiaviele plays Dr. Kaufman. Vincent Schiaviele, you you would, or Scavielli, however, you would pronounce... His name, uh, you would recognize him if you saw his face, for sure. Very long face. Uh, Judy Dench is M, once again. Who else do we have in here? I don't recognize anybody else. Cecile Thompson looks uh, rather attractive, but, I mean, I can't tell... I don't recognize her, I'll tell you that. Anyway, <clears throat> so... Storyline here. Agent 007 Pierce Brosnan is on a mission which includes a media tycoon, his former lover, and a Chinese agent. Elliot Carver, Jonathan Price, wants to complete his global media empire, but in order for this to work, he must achieve broadcasting rights in China. Carver wants to start up World War III by starting a confrontation over British and Chinese waters. Bond gains the help of Wai Lin, Michelle Yeoh, in his quest to stop him. How will Bond feel when he meets up with his former lover, Paris, Terry Hatcher, who is now Carver's wife? Uh, the following film, uh, obviously, after this is The World Is Not Enough. I have that one as well, uh, VHS. There's also Die Another Day, which I would definitely like to uh, see if I can get a hold of that one, uh, which is the follow-up after The World Is Not Enough. The tagline here is the man, the number, the licenses, or excuse me, the license are all back. Okay, yeah, because they were on a hiatus from... Uh, Uh, After um, Excuse me Or before uh, Goldeneye Because there was a 1989's uh, License to Kill I believe was the uh, last one And then uh, They went on like a Five or six year hiatus Anyway Trivially For the fight scene In the bicycle shop The producers had to call in Jackie Chan's stunt team So I'm assuming uh, maybe perhaps Sammo uh, Hung, which is a really cool guy who obviously incorporated a lot of uh, martial arts stuff with Jackie Chan in his films. Because none of the stuntmen wanted to do the scene with Michelle Yeoh due to her full contact stunt fighting style, which she perfected in Hong Kong action films. Makes perfect sense because where's Jackie Chan from? Hong Kong. That's pretty rad. Sir Anthony Hopkins was actually cast as Elliot Carver. Uh, Jonathan Price's character and joined the production but walked after three days because it was so chaotic there was no completed shooting script due to the pressure on Eon Productions to finish the movie on time. New pages of screenplay were being delivered every morning he opted to appear in The Mask of Zorro 1998 instead. <coughs> Excuse me. Just before shooting the scene where James Bond and Lin got on the motorcycle director Roger Spotswood took Piers Brosnan and Michelle Yeoh aside each without their uh, each other's knowledge and told each of them not to let the other get in the driver's seat. The result in the final film, Bond and Wylin over who gets to drive before getting on the bike, was, well, actually real. Pretty funny. Made particularly heavy use of gadgetry because some fans thought there was too little of gadgets used in GoldenEye, so therefore they upped the ante two years later. Okay, all right, what else we got here? <coughs> Excuse me. Man, I'm just dying still. Oh boy, what am I uh, looking at? Okay, released December 19th, 1997. Uh, uh what, five? I can't even do math. Six days, basically a week before uh, Christmas of '97. Countries of origin, UK and US, not surprised. Spoken also in English, German, Danish, Mandarin, and Cantonese. Also known as TND. I guess, I suppose, probably just to shorten it. Uh, budget was 110 million and it grossed 333 million. So I'd say it was a success. Uh, production companies by MGM, United Artists, and Eon Productions. Wikipedia, let's see what we got here going on. The 18th within the uh, film series of the Jane Bond, uh, well, films. Uh, a film produced by Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, as in all of the other ones that they have been involved with. Uh, performed well at the box office, becoming the fourth highest grossing film of 97, earning a golden. Golden, Yep, golden. There's your fucking English. A Golden Globe nomination despite mixed reviews. It was the only one of the Brosnan films not to open at number one at the box office, as it opened the same day as Titanic, and finished at number two that week. Oh boy. <clears throat> Production-wise. Uh, the 18th film was greenlit after positive public reception to the teaser trailer for Goldeneye in May of 95. Following the success of that film, the pressure came from MGM, which along with its new owner, billionaire Kirk Kerkorian, wanted the film release released to coincide with their public... Uh, stock offering co-producer michael g wilson commented you realize that there's a huge audience and i guess you do not want to come out with a film that's going to somehow disappoint them i suppose you're correct in that regard it was the first bond film made after the death of albert r broccoli the uh husband to barbara broccoli who was involved with the series production since its inception Makes perfect sense since I believe what the first film was maybe like 60, 58, 50, 60 around there. The film was dedicated to his memory. The rush to complete the film drove the budget to 110 million. Producers were unable to persuade GoldenEye director Martin Campbell to return as he had chosen to direct Mask of Zorro instead, who also Anthony Hopkins opted to play as instead of Elliot Carver, aka Jonathan Price's uh, actor, as I aforementioned already. His agent said Martin just didn't want to do two Bond films in a row. Roger Spotswood chose to direct in September of 96. He had offered to direct GoldenEye when Timothy Dalton was cast out as Bond. Interesting. (coughs) Writing-wise, oh boy, Uh, Robert Maxwell and Mr. Wilson, apparently, we didn't have a script that was ready to shoot in the first day of filming, while Pierce Brosnan said we had a script that was not functioning in certain areas. And yeah, okay, the title was inspired by the Beatles song, Tomorrow Never Knows. Well, shout out to the great, uh, you know, Fab Four there. The eventual title came out by an accident. One of the potential titles was Tomorrow Never Lies, referring to Tomorrow's newspaper in the plot. And this was faxed to MGM. However, due to typing error, it became Tomorrow Never Dies. Oh, that's funny. So it could have been Tomorrow Never Lies. That's hilarious. A title MGM found so attractive that they insisted on using that instead. And uh, rightly so over Tomorrow Never Knows. uh, Yeah, no, 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 thank you. The title was first not to have any relation to Fleming's life or work. Uh, This is also the second, I guess, film within the catalog of Ian Fleming's Inception of James Bond, the character these two films not being anything um, synonymous with anything that he has written, I suppose. Terry Hatcher was three months pregnant casting-wise when shooting started, although her publicist stated that pregnancy did not affect the production schedule. Okay, right on. Uh, Her Paris Carver, I guess, character decided to say, it's such an artificial kind of character to be playing that you don't get any special satisfaction from it. Uh, Okay, whatever. Actress Sayla Ward auditioned for this particular role. The producers reportedly said that they wanted her, but she was 10 years younger. Hatcher, at 32 at the time, was seven uh, seven years Ward's junior and playing Lois Lane on the television series Lois and Clark. I liked that show as a kid. I uh, I haven't seen it probably since I was a kid. Maybe I need to revisit it. I'm sure it probably doesn't hold up as well. Maybe... I always kind of like to go into things thinking like, oh, I'm going to be disappointed. Maybe not always, but if you think that way, then you have nothing to lose, I guess. And then you're like, oh, if something's better than I thought it being disappointing, then, well, you aren't really disappointed, are you? (laughs) Uh, Terry Hatcher was voted sexiest woman on television by readers of TV Guide that previous year in 96. According to Brosnan, Brosnan, Monica Bellucci also screen-tested for that role. As Brosnan remarked, the fools said no. Daphne Deckers, who portrays, uh, PR woman also confirms that she saw Bellucci the same day that she auditioned herself. Bellucci subsequently had a role in the 24th bill, uh, film, uh, of the Bond series Spectre or Spectre, however you want to pronounce it. The, uh, Daniel Craig one, the role of Elliot Carver initially offered to Anthony Hopkins. Obviously he opted out for Masculine Zoro, as I already mentioned to you guys, uh, filming wise, Vic Armstrong directed the second unit filming of 11 million, uh, four minute pre title sequence began on. Wow. Uh, January 18th of 97, some uh, scenes, there it is fucking again, some scenes, fucking A, were planned to be filmed on location in Ho Chi Minh City as the production had been granted a visa. It would have been the first major film to be shot in Vietnam since the Vietnam War. Wow. However, the visa was later uh, rescinded by Vietnamese Prime Minister two months after planning had begun, forcing filming to move to Bangkok, Thailand instead. Bond spokesman Gordon Arnell claimed the Vietnamese were unhappy with the crew and equipment needed for pyrotechnics, with a Vietnamese official saying it was due to many complicated reasons. Anthony Way says he believed that the decision was caused after Vietnam's communist government had viewed the opening credits of GoldenEye featuring a semi-naked lady smashing up a hammer and sickle, emblems with sledgehammers, illustrating the fall of communism. Ah, okay. So, of course, they're going to be upset because they saw that. And, you know, they have a Vietnamese communist government. So, of course, they're going to be upset. It's It was like anti... What they believed in. I, I get it. Two locations from previous bomb films were used. Uh, Brosnan and Hatcher's love scene was filmed at Stoke Park, featured in Goldfinger, uh, one of the early Sean Connery films. And the bay where they search for Carver's stealth boat is Fangya Bay, I guess, How? Re- excuse my pronunciation, previously used uh, for the man with the golden gun. I believe that is a Roger Moore one, if I'm not mistaken. <coughs> excuse me. The exterior of Elliot Carver's CMGN Hamburg HQ headquarters was filmed at IBM Buildings and Bedfont Lakes. Uh, Quays Printer Limited doubled as the interior of the Hamburg uh, print facility. Spotswood director did not return to the next film. He said that the producers asked him, but he was too tired. I mean, I'm tired now reading this, but I'm still doing it. So buck up there, uh, bucko. Brosnan Hatcher reported to have uh, feuded briefly during the film due to her arriving late on set one day. Interesting. Uh, The matter was quickly resolved, though, and Brosnan apologized to Hatcher after realizing she was pregnant and was late for that particular reason. Yeah, nice one, uh, Pierce Brosnan. Good job. Anyway, Tomorrow Never Lies. Excuse me. Tomorrow Never Dies. I decided to say that on purpose because I thought it was funny, and that was the original title due to a typo. They changed it. That's a trip. Uh, Marked the first appearance of Walter P99 as Bond's pistol. Okay, or the Walter, however you want to pronounce it. Excuse me. Replacing the, I'm going to say the Walter, that the character had carried in every Eon Bond film since Dr. No in 1962, with the exception of Moonraker, in which Bond was not seen with a pistol whatsoever. That's a trip. I believe that's an 80s one. I don't, I think it's either Roger, yeah, it's got to be Roger Moore. Walter wanted to debut its new firearm in a Bond film, which had been one of its most visible endorsers. Previously, the P5 was introduced in Octopussy. Bond would use the P99 until Daniel Craig reverted to the PPK as 007 in Quantum of Solace in 2008. That's a trip. Uh, musically, uh, who did the uh, intro? It was Sheryl uh, Crow. That's what it was. Yeah. There were, <clears throat> yeah, she did the intro with the, uh, you know, really cool uh, artist- artistic, uh, you know, backdrop and so forth that they always have in Bond films. Uh, John Barry was in talks to return to James Bond for the first time in a decade, but could not reach an agreement over his salary. Uh, so therefore, he went to David Arnold to score Tomorrow Never Dies uh, instead of. Uh, Mr. Barry, this time round, release the film had a world charity premiere at the Odin Leicester Square on December 9th of nineteen ninety seven at Bedford Square, uh, home of the original Ian e. Fleming uh, publisher, who happens to be the you know creator of uh, James Bond. The film went into general release in the UK and Ireland on December twelfth, and most other countries during the following week. It did not surpass its predecessor Goldeneye, which had earned almost twenty million dollars more as far as a uh, gross worldwide. Okay, Critical Reception, Rotten Tomatoes, 57%, a 6.1 out of 10. The website's consensus, a competent, if sometimes by the numbers, entry to the 007 franchise, Tomorrow Never Dies may not boast the most original plot, but its action sequences are genuinely thrilling. Uh, yeah, I can get on board with that. Yeah, the plot itself, it's okay, but the action sequences are really cool. On Metacritic, the film has a 52 out of 38 mixed with average reviews. CinemaScore giving it A- out of A2 <clears> at <throat> F scale. Roger Ebert, of course, giving the film a 3 out of 4. It does get the job done, sometimes excitingly, often with style, with the villain slightly more contemporary and plausible than usual, bringing some subtler-than-usual satire into the film. Yeah, there there is very subtle, tiny little bits of humor here. Just a little bit. Gene Siskel, also of the Chicago Tribune, wrote it was the first... Uh, James Bond film I've liked in many a year interesting most notably favoring the character Elliot Carver Jonathan Price's character which he felt added contemporary writing to the Bond series I, I, can, ag- I can agree with that it made it a lot more uh, modern to uh, modern times it didn't feel much so as like a timepiece per se I see what he's saying here therefore uh, permitting it to be most welcome is what he closes out with here <clears throat> the title song sung by Sheryl Crow was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Original Song at the Grammy Awards of that year <clears throat> interesting Retrospective reviews. What do we got here? The, the AFI, American Film Institute, not a fire inside. Classic punk rock band, though. Love them. Well, before Sing the Sorrow. Yeah, everything Sing the Sorrow and Before is great. After that, eh, that's just my opinion. Nominated the film in 2001 for AFI's 100 Years of Thrills, as David Arnold score in 2005 for AFI's 100 Film Scores. Andrew Heritage mentioned tomorrow never dies in his book, Great Movies, 100 Years of Cinema, alongside Goldfinger, and From Russia with Love. Interesting. Appearing in other media. Uh, excuse me, Raymond Benson's version expanded from this screenplay, including additional scenes with Y Lin and other supporting characters not in the film. It's an an adaptation of his novel, is what I'm saying. The novel traces Carver's background as the son of a media mogul, Lord Roverman, whom Carver blackmails into suicide, later taking over his business. The novel also attempts to merge Benson's series with the films, particularly by continuing a middle-of-the-road approach to uh, John Gardner's continuity. Notably, it includes a reference to the film version of You Only Live Twice. That's cool. Where he states that Bond was lying to Miss Moneypenny when he said he had taken a course in Asian languages. Tomorrow Never Dies also mentions his Felix uh, Leiter. It states that Leiter, uh, Felix Leiter, uh, had worked for Pinkerton's detective agency. Uh, there also was a third-person PlayStation game Tomorrow Never Dies on PlayStation 1 at the time. The game was developed by Black Ops and published by EA Electronic Arts on November 16, 1999. Game Revolution described it as really just an empty and shallow game. Yeah, I, I saw gameplay of it because uh, the copy of my VHS, this and Goldeneye, the previous film, it shows a clip of, uh, it's basically the same trailer of <clears throat> Tomorrow Never Dies on PlayStation 1 in it. It looks rather mediocre. It's interesting because the Golden Eye on N64 actually looks better, and that's considered a first person. This is a third person. Uh, excuse me. And IG, IGN, Internet Gaming News, say, said that it was mediocre. And pretty much from my statement as well as what they had to say is, yeah, it, it's just middle of the road, I guess. But uh, <clears throat> there you have it. There's Tomorrow Never Dies and uh, moving on to the next Bond film. All right, well, since I mentioned it, yep, I have all three of them, Uh, yeah, I decided to talk about it uh, since I watched it. The World is Not Enough, 1999, PG-13, two hours and eight minutes, two minutes shy of the uh, first installment of this particular little tiny trilogy, uh, if you will, um, Goldeneye, also coming out uh, two years apart, pretty interesting, 95, 97, and 99, Uh, six and a half, well, 6.4, whatever, out of 205,000. Reviews, uh, James Bond, Pierce Brosnan, uncovers a nuclear plot while protecting an oil heiress from her former kidnapper and an international terrorist who can't feel pain. I remember World is Not Enough being a uh, blue cartridge on uh, N64. You could actually use AI bots in it. And they return to the form of the uh, first person shooter compared to the Tomorrow Never Dies on PS1 being a uh, third person shooter. This game was actually really cool. I felt like it was tighter graphics, tighter gameplay. I don't feel like this one, compared to the first one, Goldeneye actually gets enough love. Uh, This one is actually really cool. Written by Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, and Bruce Fairstein. Directed by Michael Apted. Apted? Uh, Let's see what else this uh, guy did, if there's anything. uh, I don't recognize anything. All right, moving on. (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) I don't know what else he did. Starring Pierce Brosnan, Sophia Marceau, and Robert Carlyle. Uh, Robert Carlyle, uh, very familiar. Uh, I can't think of what else he's done. I've, I've seen him, though. Denise Richards is in this. Uh, she was great in uh, Tammy and the T-Rex. I love that film. Go watch that, Tammy and the T-Rex. Uh, Paul Walker, uh, he turns into a T-Rex. I've talked about it before. It's, it's a trip. Uh, Judy Dench, once again, plays M. John Cleese from uh, the Monty Python plays R. Maria Grazia Cucinoda plays uh, Cigar Girl. Desmond Leland plays Q um Colin Salmon, plays Robinson. I've seen him before as well. Yeah. Pretty cool. All right. What else we got here? Taglines, danger, suspense, excitement. There <laughs> must be when he's around. I feel like they're running out of ideas for taglines here. I mean, I suppose so after the 19th installment, right? So, trivially, let's see what we got here. Uh when the real MI6 or yeah, MI6 learned that this movie would be shot Uh, A scene around headquarters, they moved to prohibit it, citing a security risk. However, Foreign Secretary Robin Cook, at the urging of Member of Parliament Janet Anderson, moved to overrule them, allowing them to shoot, stating, After all Bond has done for Britain, it's the least we could do for Bond. Desmond Leland Q died in a car accident soon after this movie was released. Um, RIP, man, that's sad. Leland said that he just before his death, he was planning to appear in the next Bond film. Video release was dedicated to Leland and featured a tribute montage of appearances in 17 Bond movies over 36 years. That's a trip, man. Not only was this his final film, it was the last James Bond movie of the second millennium. That's true. Uh, The scene in which James Bond, Pierce Brosnan, grabs the cables on the Millennium Dome required extraordinary difficult stunt work. Director Michael Apted intentionally left a shot of one of the stuntmen missing a cable he was attempting to grab in the final cut. Apted included the miscue in order to uh, highlight how difficult the scene had been to film, and as an honor to the stunt performers who worked on the film. In the warehouse that Sugovsky Robbie Coltrane, has turned into an operations room, the uh, girly picture scene on the walls are actually former Bond girls. That's pretty cool. Ha! A little homage there. Uh, the adjusting of the tie underwear, or underwa- underwear, tie underwear, yep, there you have it, tie underwear by Ralph Lloyd and Calvin Klein. No, what the fuck? The adjusting of the tie underwater by James Bond in the opening boat chase was an idea conceived by Pierce Brosnan. That's funny. And it's very clever and very British of him, and it works. That's, that's awesome. All right, here. What do we got here as far as box office goes? November 19th, 1999, released. Countries of origin, U.S. and U.K. Not surprised. Languages spoken English, Russian, and Spanish. Also known as Bond 19. Filmed in Chamonix, haute Savoie, France. Excuse my French there. Uh, produced by eon and Metro goldenware as expected budget one hundred thirty five million gross three hundred sixty one so all three of these you know they continually keep bringing people into uh you know getting the seats and audiences to enjoy these films, but apparently the scores are just eh whatever so moving on to wiki filming locations included spain france uh azerbaijan Turkey sure in the u k of course with interior shot at pinewood studios filming received at, or Excuse me. Filming received mixed reviews. Is what I was trying to say. The plot and Denise Richards' casting frequently targeted for criticism. Receiving praise for the performance of Brosnan and Sophia Marceau, its emotional weight and focus on characters in comparison to previous entries. The world is not enough. Earned three sixty-eight point or excuse me, three sixty-one point eight million worldwide. It was the first Eon-produced Bond film released under MGM label instead of United Artists, the franchise's original owner and distributor. Oh, okay, interesting. Production-wise, in November of 97, a month prior to the release of Tomorrow Never Dies, Barbara Broccoli, the uh, wife of the uh, husband who died in the previous film who's been producing him since its inception, uh, watched a news report on Nightline detailing how the world's major oil companies were vying for control of untapped oil reserves in the uh, Caspian Sea in the wake of the Soviet Union's collapse, and suggesting that controlling the only pipeline from the Caspian to the West would be an appropriate motivation for a potential Bond villain. That's pretty cool. Screenwriters retake... A lot of stuff from the aborted story, Reunion with Death, an eventual installment planned in '93 for Timothy Dalton as Bond. Broccoli was uh, especially impressed by the writer's suggestion of a female main villain, stating that with Elektra, uh Bond thinks he has found in Tracy, but he's really found a Blofeld or Biofeld. Whatever, moving on. I, I, can't, I can't read everything correctly all the time, guys. Sorry. <laughs> Initially, the film was to be released in 2000, rumored to be titled Bond 2000. Everybody had to have some sort of Y2K in their fucking uh, movies. And then, you know, there's Super Nintendo. There's like Super Baseball, Super Basketball. And then N64 was Mario Kart 64, Mario 64. Like, fuck, man. Just driving everything into the freaking water here. <laughs> Other rumors entitled included Death Waits for No Man, Fire and Ice. Well, there was already a... Uh, mystical, you know, dragon and slain and magic and Middle Earth type animation film called Fire and Ice from the early 80s. So I'm glad they changed it. Uh, Pressure Point and Dangerously Yours were also other possible titles. The eventual title to World Is Not Enough in the English translation of the Latin phrase Orbis Non-Sufficit. The motto of Bond's supposed real world ancestor, Sir Thomas Bond. That's pretty cool. Uh, Crime novelist Donald E. Westlake wrote an early draft of the film, which was later scrapped because of difficulties in filming of the script's original setting in China. Westlake adapted the script into the novel Forever and Death, published posthumously in 2017 by Hard Case Crime. Uh, Filmed, the pre-title sequences uh, begin in Bilbao, Spain, featuring the uh, Guggenheim Museum. What a name. Uh, After the opening scene, the movie uh, moves to London, showcasing the SIS building in the Millennium Dome on the Thames River. Daily Telegraph claimed that the British government prevented some filming in the front of the actual MI6 headquarters at Valhall Cross, citing a security risk. And rightly so, I get it. Principal photography began January 17th of 99 and lasted until June of that year. The interior of the Lenoir Casino in Baku, Azerbaijan, Jeez, uh, so many, I, I, like I said before, I can't read everything correctly in English, sorry, shot at the Halton House, the officer's mess of the RAF, the Royal Air Force, Halton. Uh, the exterior of the oil pipeline filmed in uh, Wales was the production team's shot oil pipeline explosion on Elsted, Surrey. Turkey was used also in the film, uh, not not blah, 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 Turkey, but I mean the country. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> also using the famous uh, Maiden's Tower, which was used as Renard's hideout in Turkey. Exteriors for Electra's King Baku Villa shot. At Pavilion in Istanbul and interiors were shot at Luton, Luton, who, excuse me, Bedfordshire, England. Like I've said before, welcome to Philip Floppen, Flugel, Dugel, Wood of England. <laughs> it's just, oh boy, it makes me laugh. The underwater submarine scenes were filmed in the Bahamas. The BMW Z8, driven by Bond in this film, was the final part of three film product placement deal with BMW at the time, since its inception of the 90s films with Pierce Brosnan and GoldenEye. But due to filming preceding release of the Z8 by a few months, several working mock-ups and models were manufactured for filming purposes. The soundtrack was composed by David Arnold. Arnold broke tradition by ending the film with a reprise of the opening theme, as with previous three films that they did, uh, including this one. Arnold intended to use the song Only Myself to Blame at the end. Uh, However, Apted discarded this, and the song was replaced by a remix of the James Bond theme. Only Myself to Blame, written by Arnold and Don Black, and sung by Scott Walker. Uh, the title song, The World Is Not Enough, was actually written by David Arnold with Don Black and performed by Garbage. Garbage uh, doing a lot of that kind of 90s, like, fat boy, slimmy, you know, blur, daft punky type, like, scrap metal hip-hop industrial music, I guess, if you will, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, uh, release and reception. Released November 19th, 1999. Uh, In L.A. at the time, MGM signed a marketing partnership with MTV, primarily for American use, who were assumed to have considered Bond as an old-fashioned secret service agent. However, as a result, MTV broadcasted more than 100,000, once again, can't fucking speak English, uh, more than 100 hours of Bond-related programs immediately after the film was released, most being presented by Denise Richards. Critical reception. Roger Ebert as Chicago Sun-Times. Splendid comic thriller. Exciting and gracefully endlessly inventive. Gave it three and a half out of four. On the other hand, Eleanor Ringel Gillespie of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution disliked the film calling it dated and confused. I assume she's probably viewing it as misogynistic and I can get it because times were changing. I get it. Rotten Tomatoes giving the world is not enough 51%. The site's consensus reads, uh, plagued by mediocre writing, uneven acting, and fairly by the numbers plot. World is not enough, is partially saved by some entertaining and truly Bond-worthy action sequences. Metacritic, 59 of 100. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, retrospective. Uh, Variety wrote in 2012, it presents a conflicted persona tone between the corny antics of Roger Moore era and the grim seriousness of where things would eventually go under the Daniel Craig's tenure. Uh, I can get on board with that, okay. IGN chose it as the fifth worst of the uh, Bond series in 2007. Wow. Uh, Norma Wilner of MSN chose it to be the third worst film above A View to Kill and License to Kill. That's kind of, that's sad. That sucks. But anyway, there you have it. All right. On to the next Bond film. Just kidding. This is the last one that I have on VHS for now. On to the next thing that I'm going to talk about. What's going on, guys? I decided that uh, I'm going to be talking about four different particular bands that I don't really necessarily feel like get too much either love or talked about all that much. Uh, Two being relatively punk or post-punk, and then two being, I guess, alternative early grunge uh, post-punk, I guess, as well. But I mean, just hear me out. Anyway. Embrace, a short-lived hardcore punk band from the uh, area of Washington, D.C., lasting a summer of 85 to the spring of 86, along with the band Rights of Spring. Hint, hint. I'm going to be talking about them later. It was one of the uh, mainstay acts of the 1985 revolution of the summer movement. It was one of the first bands to be dubbed in the press as emo hardcore. And, well, hear me out. The members had rejected the term since its creation, especially this particular individual, lead vocalist Ian MacKay, for Minor Threat, of the defunct hardcore punk band, the aforementioned, the band that I just mentioned, Minor Threat. Therefore, shortly after Minor Threat, they did actually just do uh, Egg Hunt. It was between him and uh, Jeff Nelson on drums. There's only two songs. And then they did uh, this, uh, Embrace. Uh, three former members of his brother, Alex, band, The Faith, guitarist Michael Hampton, drummer Ivor Hanson, the bassist Chris Bald, Hampton and Hansen had also previously worked together in uh, SOA. Uh, the band played their first show on July 28, 1985 at Food for Thought. SOA was also on a uh, compilation album of the Teen Idols, which was Ian McKay's first band before Minor Threat, along with SOA and a government issue, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I have that one. Yeah. The band played, excuse me, a former restaurant music venue located in D.C., the Food for Thought uh, location, uh, DuPont Circle. Their ninth and final show was held at 930 A club in March of 1986, the only recording released by the quartet was their posthumous 1987 self-titled album, Embrace, being influenced by the Faith EP subject to change. Following the breakup of Embrace, Mackay and Minor Threat uh, drummer Jeff Nelson uh, tried turning their recent one-off musical experiment England dubbed Egg Hunt. Excuse me, I stand corrected, or I'm sitting corrected. Egg Hunt was after the fact. I thought Egg Hunt was before, so I was misinformed. Excuse me. Uh, But the project never made it past the rehearsal stage. Right. They only had, like I said, two songs. It's uh, We All Fall Down, and I can't remember the other song on it. Uh, It's pretty funny, the cover of that album, uh, Egg Hunt. You can see it's like Ian Mackay on like a ceiling, and he's like looking through the ceiling, and it's like just his face. Uh, Hampton, for his part, teamed up with former members of Rights of Spring to form the short-lived post-hardcore band One Last Wish. I might have to check that out. While Bald moved on to uh, the band with Ignition, Makai eventually directed his energy and creativity towards forming the band Fugazi in 87. And Ivor Hansen would pair up with Hampton again in 88 for Manifesto. During the band's formative years, some fans started referring to them and fellow innovator writes of Spring as emo core, e- emotive hardcore bands. A term Makai, as I stated, publicly disagreed with. Because he's stated before, isn't all music technically emotional? I guess maybe per. I don't. I like Embrace, too. It's a different kind of, like, Minor Threat. It's, it's still punk in its own right, but it's not, it's not the same. Minor Threat was definitely probably the hardest stuff that they did, in my opinion. Uh, that being probably my favorite. Then this, and then probably uh, Fugazi's cool. It's It's interesting. But uh, Discography, Embrace, 1987, compilation of appearances, 20 years of Discord, 2002, Discord being the uh, label that Ian McKay and Jeff Nelson own. Next band I would like to talk about, Galaxy 500, not too much on these guys. An American alternative rock band forming in 87, split up in 91 after releasing three albums. Today on Fire, this is our music, and the band was made up of guitarist, vocalist, Dean Wareham, drummer, Damon Krakowski, and uh, bassist and vocalist, Naomi Yang. guitarist and drummer and bassist had met in Dalton school in New York city in 81, but began playing together during their time as students at Harvard. When they returned in 87, he and Krakowski, excuse me, all the members, uh, with including Yang on bass, joining the group on, uh, excuse me, the new group deciding to name themselves galaxy 500 after a friend's car, a Ford galaxy 500. The band began playing gigs in Boston and New York city and recorded a demo, which they sent to shimmy disc label boss producer, Mark Kramer, who agreed to produce with the band. Kramer at the controls. The band recorded the tugboat single in 88. The band toured uh, the UK in 88 to 89, then signed to rough trade and released their second album on fire. Uh, Galaxy 500 recorded two sessions for John Peel's BBC radio program, later released on the Peel sessions album. Their cover of Jonathan Richmond's don't let our youth go to waste. Also voted number 41 in 89's festive 50 by 50 listeners to the show. Bands split up in the spring of 91 after the release of their third album, uh, Wareheim guitarist said galaxy 500 broke up because it was time we broke up as a result of uh, internal contradictions columbia records was interested in signing us but the making of the previous album had been very difficult and clearly we weren't getting along so why we or excuse me why should we continue to sit in a room and make music together their last performance was april 5th 91 at Baudouin Bow, uh, college for the campus radio station wbor their records were released in the U.S. and the U.K. on independent Rough Trade label. When Rough Trade went bankrupt in uh, 91, Kurkowski and Yang purchased the Masters at auction, reissuing them on Ryko Disc in 96 as a box set containing their albums and discs of rarities. Musical style influences. Influenced by the Velvet Underground. Yeah, because it's very... Early, like, proto-punk. I, I could I could definitely hear that and see that, absolutely, with the atmospheric production style having been identified as their key influences. Interviews with them uh, on their DVD Don't Let Our Youth Go To Waste, Wareheim cites Spaceman 3 as another key inspiration. All right, note to self, I might have to check out Spaceman 3. Post-Galaxy 500 activities. Um, after leaving the band, Wareheim, the guitarist, tried his hand at production working, working with Mercury Rev. Uh, he released a solo single, Anesthesia, in February of 92 forming a new band, Luna. In June 2010, Wareham announced on his website that he would be going on Autumn Tour under the moniker Dean Wareham Plays Galaxy 500, where he would, as the moniker suggests, only play Galaxy 500 songs. That That's cool. Uh, discography, as I stated, three albums, compilations three, and post-split releases uh, two. So, all right, there you have it. <clears throat> Embrace and Galaxy. Uh, 500. Let's move on to the next. Uh, I really don't have too much on these guys. There's really not much, but I really like them. They're on, uh, the sub pop label <clears throat> love as laughter an American indie rock band from Olympia, Washington. They formed in 94 by vocalist and guitarist, uh, Sam Jane as a solo project following the breakup of his previous band link. In 2008, the band signed with Isaac Brock's label Glacial Pace and released the album Holy. At the time, the band featured Jane, Ivan Burko on bass, Zeke Howard on drums, Andy McLloyd on guitar, and Robbie Lee on keyboards. That's a mouthful. Jane was found dead. Wow. wow. Holy crap. Uh, oh, yikes. Uh, okay. Jane was found dead on December 15th, uh, 2020 at the age of 46. Wow. That's geez, man. That's Sam Jane, the uh, vocalist and guitarist. I I had no idea. I did not know that. Wow. (laughs) Sam Jane's death apparently found unresponsive lying in the back of his car by New York City police about a week after he was reported missing. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Preliminary research from NYPD shows no signs of criminality. His family uh, confirmed that his cause of death was a result of heart-related undiagnosed health conditions. Interesting. <clears throat> he died peacefully while curled up in his car the night before a planned cross country drive to visit friends around the holidays happened. That's cr- man, I did not know that. Cause I have, I have the Grex Bring Gifts, I have Number One USA, and I have Destination Two Thousand. I oh, I also have Sea to Shining Sea. I don't know if I have any of the other ones uh, albums. Then there's Laughter's Fifth Two Thousand Five, and then Holy Two Thousand Eight. Man, that's pretty sad. I, man, I did not know that. Okay, all right. Uh, last band, uh, aforementioned, since I was talking about Embrace. They had influences and similar sounds to that of Rites of Springs. So that's what i will be talking about. An American punk band from Washington, D.C. forming in late 1983 along the, uh, <clears throat> with Embrace, as I mentioned, and Beefeater. I'm going to have to check out Beefeater, too. They were one of the mainstay acts of 1985, Revolution summer movement, which took them to w, uh, Excuse me, Washington, D.C. hardcore punk scene. What did I say? I said Spaceman 3. I'm going to check, check that out. Spaceman 3. i i got to write this down. And Beefeater before I forget. Otherwise, I know my ADD is going to kill me. All right. Musically, Rites of Spring increased the phonetic, violence, and visceral passion of hardcore punk while simultaneously experimenting with its compositional rules. They definitely changed things up. I can agree with them on that. Really cool logo, too, on their uh, album. Well, same with Embrace, too. It's interesting. Lyrically, they also shifted hardcore into intensely personal realms and, in doing so, often considered the first emo band. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean... Once again, I would have to agree with Ian McKay, though. Isn't all music technically emotional, but whatever. The band itself rejected any association between themselves and the emo. That's awesome. Hell yeah. I didn't, I didn't even read that. I totally just agreed with them. The band only performed 19 shows. 16 in D.C. and three were outside of D.C. Vocalist, guitarist, Guy Pidgeotto. Uh, <laughs> Pidgeotto? Sure, he's a fucking Pokemon. Picciotto, whatever. And drummer Brendan Kranty, <laughs> Canty. Went on to play in Fugazi. That's cool. With producer and former minor threat singer Ian McKay, of course, in the late 80s, while bassist Mike Fellows formed Mighty Flashlight and has had a solo career. Interesting. Historically, uh, the band follows. Have, uh, they've played together in short-lived hardcore band Insurrection. The trio was joined by guitarist Eddie Janney, formerly of Faith, which was uh, Alec uh, McKay's uh, band, Ian Mackay's brother uh scoobald and the untouchables and began writing music together in december of 83 the bands uh, several songs during early period like all there is end on end and by design making a demo recording it in your studios in april of 84 then fellows moved to california we thought he was leaving forever uh Picciotto recall i can't i can't read it with i every time i look at it now i'm like Picciotto pokemon i don't know why he sounds like this hey hey, hey why do i sound like that <laughs> whatever stupid and then we just kept practicing with him, hoping he'd come back. Lo and behold, three months later, he returned. Influenced by The Faith, Eddie Jenny's previous band and their 1983 EP subject to change with their introspective lyrics and angry melody-tinged songwriting. I gotta write that, that one down to The Faith. I gotta check this stuff out, man. This shit's cool. All right. I love finding, like, little loopholes of stuff that i'm like i know i like this oh i've never heard of that let me check that out the band is named after the symphonic ballet the rite of spring by igor stravinsky we were reading about stravinsky in the first performance where everybody beat each other on the head interesting uh when you fuck with someone musically and they take their music really serious they're gonna fuck with you back Picciotto said Uh, the band chose the name to reflect their desire to revive the dc punk scene hell yeah we were trying to create a rebirth of what was going on there because obviously before that there was mind threat and bad brains and i guess it kind of just And necessarily, I guess, fizzled, perhaps. Sure, why not? It seemed to be stagnating for a long time. Well, that's basically what I just said. And we just thought the name of uh, kind of fit the way we felt a springtime type of thing. Post-breakup of musical influence here. One last wish with Embrace Alumni's guitarist Michael Hampton. They recorded one studio album entitled 1986, which was released in 99 due to the band breaking up after mixing was finished. Writes of Spring Personnel reunited for a quasi-reincarnation called Happy-Go-Lucky, releasing an LP, various live concert recordings through never producing any studio work. <clears throat> Picciotto and Canty eventually teamed up with bassist Joe Lally and former minor threat Scoobald, Egg Hunt, and Embrace singer Ian McKay Helia, yeah. co-owner of the band's label Discord Records, as I mentioned, in Fugazi. Mike Fellows went on to do... So-, so they all like... They were all like, let's do our separate thing. And they were like, you know what? Let's make a super group kind of thing. That's so... Ah. God, man, just sign of the times, dude. So fucking cool. Mike Fellows went on to do session work for the Drag City label from Mighty Flashlight, releasing the eponymous album under his name in 2002. Picciotto himself did not recognize the attribution or yeah, of having created emo. When asked about an interview, his response was, I've never recognized emo as a genre of music. I always thought it was the most retarded term ever. That's his words. So how about I'll just replace it. Uh, I'll replace that sentence. Hang on. I always thought it was the most dumb term ever. How about that? I did not know he was going to say that. I knew there is a generic commonplace that every band that gets labeled with uh, that term hates it. They feel scandalized by it. But honestly, I just thought it was all bands I played in were punk rock bands. The reason I think it's so stupid is that it's what it's like. The bad brains, weren't they emotional? Well, were they robots or something? It just it just didn't make sense to me is what he was saying. And I can get on board with that. Just Chord releases the band's only demo, entitled Six Song Demo, in October of 2012. All tracks of the demo were previously recorded versions of songs appearing on the Rights of Spring album. All right, then. Yeah, uh, several different members, and they only have one album, just like Embrace did. So there you have it, four bands. Uh, Embrace, Galaxy 500, uh, Love as Laughter, and Rights of Spring. All right, moving on to the next thing. Let's go. Well, you know what? I think I'm going to close out today's episode with a little bit more music. I'm going to be talking about Napster. This thing was such a big fucking deal when it came out. I remember like you can like, wait, you can download music and put it on CDs and you can listen to it off the computer and you can download MP4s. And I remember that's like how I watched, I think, Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z with a buddy of mine. And I remember making like mix CDs and there was the easy CD creator by Roxio. And like, it was just so revolutionary. You know, I don't really know too much about it other than, like, I used it. You know, I think most of us really did. We all kind of downloaded music back in the day, right? And burnt CDs and mixtapes for friends and so forth. But that being said, I wanted to look up the history of it. It was a peer-to-peer file sharing application that originally launched on June of 1999 with an emphasis on digital audio file distribution. Songs shared on the service were typically encoded in MP3 format founded by Sean Fanning, Sean Parker, and Hugo Contreras. As the software became popular, the company ran into legal difficulties over copyright infringement. And I get it, you know, uh, record companies and bands weren't making any money off of it. It seized operations in 2001 after losing a wave of lawsuits and filed for bankruptis- bankruptcy in June of 2002. So they lasted a total of three years? Wow, crazy. Uh, later, more uh, decentralized projects followed Napster's uh, sharing example, uh, like Fast Track and SoulSeek as well as some services and software like LimeWare. I remember them. Kazaa. Uh, I don't see anything about Morpheus. I remember definitely using that. E-Donkey. That's a fucking funny name. Also brought down on ch- uh, due to charging of uh, copyright issues and infringement. Napster's assets were eventually re- acquired by Roxio, and it reemerged uh, as an online music store. Best Buy later purchased the service and merged it with Rhapsody Service on December first, 2011, rebranding it back to Napster. Its uh, origin, founded by Sean Fanning and Sean Parker, envisioned by Fanning as an independent peer-to-peer file-sharing service. The service operated between June and July of 2001. Its technology... uh, Can't fucking speak English! Its technology allowed people to easily share MP3 files with other participants. Uh, Although the original service was shut down by court order, Napster Brands survived the other company's assets, liquidated and purchased by other companies through bankruptcy proceedings. Historically... There were already networks and facilitated distribution of files across the internet, such as the IRC, Hotline, and Usenet. Specializing uh, Napster in MP3 files of music and user-friendly interface, at its peak, Napster's service had about 80 million registered users. Wow. Uh, Making it relatively easy for music enthusiasts to download copies of songs otherwise difficult to obtain, such as older music, unreleased recordings, studio recordings, and songs from uh, concert bootlegs. Napster paved the way for streaming media services and transformed music into a public good for a brief time. Yeah, I, yeah, that was one way to get your message out there without having to spend money. I get it. High speed networks in college dormitories became overloaded with as much as 61% of external network trafficking consisting of file transfers. Wow. Uh, the Macintosh version service and software program began as windows only. However, in 2000, black hole media wrote a Macintosh client called Maxter. Maxter was later brought by Napster and uh, designated the official Mac Napster client. Uh, The most notable was the option, uh, excuse me, the open source client called Maxstar released by Squirrel Software in early 2000. The release uh, of the source code paved the way for the third party Napster clients across all computing platforms, giving using advertisement free music distribution options. Uh, Obviously legal challenges. Uh, They were faced with the following allegations within the music industry. One, its users were directly violating the plaintiff's copyrights. Got it. Uh, Two, the Napster was responsible for contributory infringement of the plaintiff's copyrights. Three, Napster was responsible for the vicarious infringement of the plaintiff's copyrights. So with all three relatively similar. So, I mean, I I get it. Uh, Promotional power. Along with accusations, uh, they were hurting with sales of the record industry. Right, I get that. I already kind of mentioned that. Some felt just the opposite. The filed trading of Napster uh, stimulated rather than hurt sales, is what they're saying. Some evidences may have come in uh, July 2000 when tracks from English rock band Radiohead Uh, Their album Kid A found their way to Napster three months before the album's release. Wow. Unlike Madonna, Dr. Dre Metallica, Radiohead had never hit the top 20 in the U.S. Furthermore, Kid A was an album without any singles released and received relatively little to uh, any radio airplay at, at all. Wow. Uh, Since 2000, many musical artists, particularly those not signed to major labels without access to traditional mass media outlets such as radio and TV, said that Napster and successive internet file sharing networks have helped get their music heard, spread word of mouth, and may have improved their sales in the long term. One such musician uh, to publicly defend Napster as a promotional tool for independent artists was uh, DJ Zelliot, who became directly involved in the 2000 A&M Records lawsuit. Chuck D. from Public Enemy also came out and supported Napster. Uh, shut down July 11th, of, as of 2000, due to a bankruptcy. On September 3rd, 2002, an American bankruptcy judge blocked the sale to uh, Bertelsmann and forced Napster to liquidate any assets whatsoever. Reuse of the name Napster's brand and logos were acquired at a bankruptcy auction by Roxio, which used them to rebrand press play music service Napster 2.0 as of September 2008 uh, in association with a deal that Best Buy bought them out, with Best Buy receiving a minority stake in Rhapsody. July Fourteenth, two 2016, Rhapsody phased out uh, the brand in favor of Napster and has since branded its serviceable internationally named as Napster and expanded toward other markets by providing music on-demand as service to other brands like the iHeartRadio app and all other access music subscription services, providing subscribers with an on-demand music experience as well as premium radio. On August twenty fifth, 2020, Napster was sold virtually... Uh, a rea- excuse me, they sold virtual reality concerts. Wow. Uh, to Melody VR. On May 10th, as of 2022, last year, Napster was sold uh, to Hivemind, okay, and Algorand. Never heard of that. Uh, anyway, the investor consortium also includes ATC Management, uh, RSC Ventures, Arrington Capital, Borderless Capital, and others. Uh, media, they have had several books that document the experiences of people working at Napster. Uh, that'd be pretty interesting to read. There was the 2003 film, The Italian Job, featuring Napster co-founder Sean Fanning as a cameo of himself. I I didn't know that. And I guess only, like, nerd nerds, I guess, would have known that. Uh, 2010's film The Social Network features Napster co-founder Sean Parker, played by Justin Timberlake, in the rise of popular websites. Okay, didn't know that. That's also cool. The 2013 film Downloaded is a documentary about sharing media on the Internet and includes the history of Napster. Uh, Yeah, there you have it. Okay. Uh, Thank you, guys, everybody, for sticking around for episode 86. You know, I talked three Bond films, a little bit of uh, Beyond Good and Evil, <clears throat> four different bands and the history of napster episode 86 uh yeah uh i don't know i was kind of on a pierce brosnan uh, binge you know obviously with dante's peak and then the three bond films that i have on a uh, vhs but uh thank you for sticking around as always thank you for the love and support and everybody and enjoy the rest of your day